You're listening to the Make It British podcast. I'm Kate Hills and I'm on a one woman mission to save UK manufacturing. I invite you to join me each week when I'll be sharing the stories behind some of the best British made brands and UK manufacturers and offering you advice and tips on making in the UK. So let's get on with today's show. Welcome to episode number 175 of the Make It British podcast. Today I'm speaking to James Stewart, who had worked at Burberry, helping them to introduce lean manufacturing principles into their manufacturing in the UK. They've got a mill and a factory that makes their raincoats up in Yorkshire. But I first met James when we were involved in trying to get the government to source more PPE from the UK. He was on many of these long and drawn out Zoom calls that we had with the government, manufacturers and the NHS about how we could get PPE made in the UK. And James was there to offer advice on how lean manufacturing principles could be used to much more quickly deploy the manufacturing of PPE locally. Now, if you're wondering what the heck I'm talking about when I say lean manufacturing, I always think of it as a method of producing products that eliminates waste and optimises the production process in manufacturing. So the idea is that it's better to produce products in smaller batches closer to the customer rather than making zillions of products overseas that no one wants to buy. So anyone that wants to manufacture sustainably and locally in the UK is in fact already using some sort of lean principles in their business without even realising it. However, what I discovered in this conversation with James is that lean is so much more than that and that it starts with the customer and putting the customer first and at the heart of everything you do, which if you've listened to this podcast recently, you will know that I'm very keen on that. And a lean business is one that ensures that they only invest time, money and people in something that creates real value for the customer. So not making a whole load of stuff that the customer doesn't want to buy that eventually ends up in landfill. So this conversation with James is slightly different from some of the other interviews that I've had on this podcast, but it's a really interesting one. And I think it will really get you thinking about ways in your business that you could introduce some of these lean principles. James, thank you so much for joining me today. We're going to learn all about lean, aren't we? You are my lean go-to person. So I wanted to get you on the <laughs> podcast so you, so you could explain its benefits. Shall, shall we start first with what's your background? My journey started about 25 years ago. I studied product design at university. And then I was fortunate enough to be uh, a handful of graduates that were picked by a company called Nokia. So at the time, no one had heard of Nokia. They, and I think people still think it's uh, Japanese. It's not. It's actually Finnish. But, um, but yeah, I joined this, this company that no one had heard of making devices that no one had really kind of, it only started to come through mobile phones. So it's kind of a new, a new technology. And so I was very lucky to join at that time. And I was also lucky because the board had, in the telecoms community, there was a thing called Six Sigma, and, and that was quite prolific through the telecoms industry and consumer electronics. But Nokia, whilst they had started that journey, had also come across Toyota and what Toyota were doing and how they were running their organization, which was very different to, to the rest of industry, really. Um, and so they they decided that they'd go a different way. And over the 10 years I was there, um, you know, Nokia was nothing when I joined. We had less than 1% market share. And when I left, we had 40%. 
in uh, in ten years, and it was all through the application of of lean from from board level to shop floor and across all of our supply chains. And that's where I learned. Um, I was very fortunate to be to be taught by Masaki Amai and um, I guess he's number two, John Miller. And yeah, so that's where I learned it. And, and I joined as a product designer. I designed, I think I was designing products for about two years and then Lean has become, <laughs> became my life at Nokia. So, uh, so it completely, completely changed. I haven't yeah, designed a product since <laughs> I've, I've been teaching Lean. Well, you obviously enjoy it. And you always, I mean, we first met each other last year when we were both involved in the PPE sourcing. Um, I won't use the word debacle, but, you know, and, 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 and you <laughs> were trying to, challenges. yeah, challenges. And you were explaining how it would make much more sense, along with myself, for these for the yeah. PPE to be made locally in the UK and how yeah. it could be done using the lean principle. So that's how we first met. And you have, yeah. have worked with some um, well-known fashion companies and manufacturers. Do you want to just tell us who they are? When I left Consumer Electronics, I then went and worked in financial services. And then, you know, more recently, I've been working with the fashion industry. I think think the fashion industry is one of those industries that hasn't necessarily understood the paradigm changes that have happened in other industries. So I think there's lots of learnings that can come from other industries. Um, And I joined Burberry wanting to you know, start to influence the, that change. Um, and I think, you know, it was great. We had Christopher and Angela who were really, Burberry when I joined, were really challenging some of the norms, <laughs> you know, bringing technology, having partnerships with Apple, you know, there was some real, you know, pushing the boundaries of what people considered was fashion. And Christopher was really inspirational. I mean, he, Burberry wasn't really just a fashion company. It was about promoting British culture. So he brought in, you know, music artists, you know, the whole the whole culture around fashion. So it wasn't necessarily just about the the clothes or the garments and, and accessories that we produced. It was also about what they represented, which I thought was really interesting. Christopher was really inspirational. He was very interested in doing things differently. So that's where Lean came in and they recognized that it was a very wasteful industry. He yeah. really believed that what Burberry stood for was its roots, which was Thomas Burberry. And, you know, we supplied um, as a company some of the pioneers of their days, explorers and, and, you know, apparel for the explorations to the South Pole. And so that was really at the heart. And that's what he brought back to, to Burberry. It kind of lost its way a little bit before I was able to come in and influence how we did that by adopting lean principles from the very start of when we start thinking about designing a product all the way through to when we deliver it to a customer. So it it takes a different way of thinking. So shall we track back then to the most basic of questions for people that are listening to this who don't know what the heck we're talking about when we mention lean? James, explain a a dummy's guide to what lean (laughs) exactly is. Um, Sounds a simple question. Uh, So I think lean means many things to many people. And it's rather a bad term anyway. I mean, I, I try and not use lean as a, as a term because I think it conjures up all sorts of perceptions of what it is. At its most basic level, it's about respecting the people and the planet um, and understanding that when you're using the world's resources, and that includes both the physical resources, but also people as, as an amazing um, resource, you know, our, our brains are amazing things. Um, it's having real respect for both of those things and creating as much value for society as possible by using as little resource as possible 
and empowering your people to come up with brilliant ideas to solve problems for, for society and humanity. That's in the essence lean, but that's that bit people completely forget. They think it's about cost cutting or removing waste or which, you know, there, there's some things, you know, you can reduce costs. And of course, you can take waste out of your business, but that's not the reason for doing it. The reason for doing it is um, that it's about respecting the planet and respecting people and creating value for society. And that's really what Toyota has promoted within its organization. They just happen to make cars. Yeah, that's like the byproduct, but that's not why they exist. They, they exist to solve the world's mobility problem. Yeah, and, and to do it in a way that, that reduces as much as possible the impact on, on the planet. And I think, you know, even they would recognize that there's a lot of work still to do. Um, you know, and, and the same with the fashion industry. We look at the fashion industry. If we use that mindset, you know, what's the impact that the fashion industry is having on the planet? And do we really utilize the world's resources in the most respectful way and the people that are involved in the fashion industry? Do we really respect all of those people? And I think there's so, some change that need, is needed because I don't think we're quite there yet or the fashion industry is quite there yet with regards to those two things. So so when you work with companies like like Burberry, what do you do to bring the lean principles into the business? I think the, the key thing is to, to help them to understand that this is, we could talk about paradigm changes, but we try to help them to understand that, look, what we're, going about, what we're about to explain to you it's pretty straightforward. I mean, we 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 see ourselves as as practitioners of a bit of a fraud because actually it's common a lot of it's common sense, but it's fundamentally very different to what most organisations are doing today. Um, and so, quite often, we introduce them to other senior leaders, so CEOs of other companies that have gone through this transformational change uh, and this change in mindset. Um, many of those companies are companies that have almost um, reached the point of bankruptcy uh, because they continue to operate in the same way. And especially if other organizations in their industry have already started the lean journey, it almost becomes impossible to compete. And so, yeah, usually we have to show them, look, this is what it looks like because it's very difficult for people to imagine when you say that everything has to change. Um, you know, most people, that's very uncomfortable <laughs> for them, especially senior leaders who everything they've learned to now, you're basically saying, well, you've got to forget about all of that because lean is the complete opposite of what, you're, what you've been doing up till now. So, um, so usually taking them to someone who's already done it and gone through that as a, as a CEO, gone through that journey, um, usually helps them to understand, okay, right, okay, I get it. And I understand what I need to do. To, to lead this organisation through that change. So. Yeah, because when you're talking heritage brands like Burberry and I, I know of other heritage yeah. textile brands that have also tried to introduce these principles, we're talking about com companies that have been established for hundreds of years yeah. who have got used to working in a very specific way and to ask them to then suddenly work mm. in a completely different way is obviously quite a challenge for them. Yeah, and it's a culture change as well. So it's actually the behaviours of people from board level down to the shop floor um, and understanding. You know, I, I presented to Christopher and the board uh, when we, we started the Lean Journey. It was 12 months after we'd started at the factory you spoke about in, in Yorkshire, the two factories. Um, and uh, within 12 months, we'd taken the lead time down by 90%. And, and the board had come to sort of see what we'd done. And I sat down and explained some of the basic principles. We talk a lot about waste and value creation for the customer. 
And I basically said to them, look, you know, if, if we think about all of you sitting here in this room and the people out on the factory floor, who's creating more value for the customer? That was my question, right? People on the factory <laughs> yeah, floor. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, lots of jaws hit the table. Um, and uh, <laughs> after I'd picked them up, uh, you know, and, and you know, Christopher and Angela were great because they, they really got it. And they said, yeah, absolutely. We're all here to ensure that those people on the factory floor have got everything they need to produce what our customers want. 90% time saving. So that's from yeah, the time. from the order of the product yeah. to when it's actually um, yeah. finished, the manufacturing is finished and produced and it's shipped. Yeah. How did you save 90%? That's incredible. Um, it wasn't me. It was the people in the factory. So once, once we explained the principles, uh, they were able to step back and look at, the operation from order to cash, and um, and we we reorganised the factory very differently. So what the actual setup of of where how the production yeah from line cutting works. so that yeah they were C, like CMT cut make trim so um, so the yeah. whole, and also we had the mill that uh, produced the fabric actually so we were not entirely vertically integrated but all of the processes from the raw cotton. Uh, the dyeing, the weaving, and the and the cut make and, and trim w- was all in the UK. Um, so we had some partners who were doing some of those processes. They looked at the whole operation as ninety percent of everything most organisations are doing is wasteful. We took you know ninety percent of the waste out. It was not. We didn't change how they were making the garment. We didn't change um, really uh, any of the value adding activities, which was the the cutting and the sewing and the weaving you know that was all that remained the same we just we just took everything else out and we rearranged the factory so that we created what we call flow so you put rather than having all the same machines in one place um, and all the cutting in one place we reorganized it so that that we created flow so that the cutting happened then it went straight onto the production line um, and we reorganized all the machines so that there is different types of machine in what we call it machines in what we call a cell so the product just flowed one at a time around the production line rather than making 10,000, moving it onto the next process. From one kind of big production line where everything was grouped into functions, you know, all the pockets were done together, all of the small parts were done together. We, we then created what we call small cells. So there were 11 small cells with every operation within the cell and, and when they were making one at a time. Yeah, one piece, what we call one piece flow. So, okay, we didn't, it was five at a time and then it went down to three at a time and then one at a time. But before they were making, you know, hundreds of thousands at a time. And hence why it took 26 weeks for a product from order to cash. When we left after the 12 months, it was it was five days and they believed they could do it in eight hours. So so you go from 26 weeks to eight hours. It's completely different. So the, the traditional model in garment manufacturing has been oh, it's more efficient to make 3,000 to 5,000 in one big go. Yeah. But what, what you're saying here is it's actually much more efficient to make just half a dozen, Yeah. but lots of cells of manufacturing of half a dozen here, half a dozen there. Yeah, very flexible. So because, and the reason is that, um, you know, a customer doesn't buy 10,000 at a time, they buy one. <laughs> Yeah. Mm. So now you okay, could have customer you, first. Yeah. And, and yeah, okay. You could have lots of customers who buy an item on the same day. Yeah. Maybe it's a thousand um, customers who buy the same item on a day, but, um, but which day and which item do you know? Probably not. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so you hold a whole load of stock in the hope, stock, in the hope that someone's going to come through the door and yeah. buy a product, but you don't know which one it is. So you place lots of big bets on all these products but you've got no idea 
um, no idea which one it is they're going to buy. That, that was my life as a buyer when we were sourcing everything <laughs> from the Far East, which is why, why I can see the advantages yeah. of making in it the UK. Sense. Yeah. So no, yeah, look at most fashion retailers, they have, you know, 50, 60% gross margins, but they're only returning an operating margin of like one or 2%. Maybe ten percent if you're lucky. I mean, but it's might five or six percent is more typical. Well, where does that go? I mean, where's all that money gone? <laughs> yeah, and all they're exactly. doing is all they're doing is 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 beating the suppliers over. You know, we've got to increase the gross margin. We've got to increase the gross margin. The number of times that was eighty percent of all the conversations within the organisation was about the gross margin, and they were looking oh, at so completely true. the wrong thing. You know, you've got a gross margin of seventy percent, but you're EBIT or EBITDA is 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 three percent. Where's that all yeah. gone? Okay, <laughs> so full of, full of full of stock. I mean, like makes this makes no sense. That's what. I mean, yeah, see, it seems like obvious maths to me. Always yeah. has done, which is why I stopped my job as a buyer thirteen years ago. <laughs> but if this is so obvious to you and I, and and a lot of wise people in our industry, yeah. why are still the majority of particularly the big retailers and the mm. big brands still doing it the old-fashioned way and not following the Toyota way. Yeah, I think I think it's because, and I know, you know there's a few people that I know who work for, for M&S who were you know, a big retailer in, in the UK, and I'm not picking on them particularly for any reason. It's just that, that they had a lot of local UK production, and I don't know who convinced them to move everything offshore, but... But whilst they were doing all of that, there was a new company in Spain setting up called Inditex that was was do, was doing exactly what MLS. You know, maybe they weren't lean, maybe they weren't as lean as they could be, but but the principle, the fundamentals were in place. You could have just improved it probably, but um, but but they decided to go another way, chasing the gross margin, and because they thought it was cheaper to make it in China. But of course, if it sat on a boat for two months, um, yeah. You know, <laughs> So Inditex, Zara, you just mentioned them. Yeah. Do they do they follow totally these sorts of principles like companies, toy, um, car companies like Toyota? Yeah, fundamentally, yes. They've adopted this business model, which is very different, and they've been taught by some Toyota um, execs. And um, are they perfect? No. Um, you know, they're, 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 they're improving all the time, but they're not perfect. But fundamentally, at the heart of the business is this understanding of creating value, continually improving the way that you're creating value and and as far as possible trying to create a circular supply chain where you you have as the, the minimal impact on the planet um, and that you create as much value for your customers um, and you do it as That's locally as, yeah as locally as possible to the customer so if I'm a manufacturer listening mm. to this I'm a, I'm a garment manufacturer in the UK what small steps can I take at first to start using some of these principles mm. do i need to completely switch around my whole factory and start moving my machines around and my pressing area and my cutting table where would i start i think what we have to think about is um you know your customer might not be the the end consumer i mean hopefully some of your production you're able to sell your own brand but the fashion industry actually relies on on re- big retailers so i think it's about understanding the challenges that big retailers face and being able to to demonstrate, as I said, it's agility and speed. So speed, you know, lead time. So if you were able to offer a garment, let's say, in eight hours, rather than you know their current suppliers are in China, it might be you know eight weeks, you know, two months, um, three months. Then if you're able to demonstrate that, look, our garment might cost a little bit more because we have to pay you know living wage. We we have very different 
you know, environment that we have to operate in, but actually the total cost to you will be less. You pay a bit more for the garment, but you won't have all this inventory and we'll be able to supply you within, you know, you place an order today and I'll have this number of garments available for you tomorrow. I'm sure lots of retailers have learned quite a difficult lesson over the last 12 months, certainly in the in the crisis. And uh, if they didn't understand the principles of, of lean, I'm pretty sure they do now. Um, and some of them don't exist because they were unable to yeah. change before the crisis. So. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think, you know, I think so as a manufacturer, it's just focusing on lead. You've got to focus on lead time. And really, if you need if you need some help around lean, then go and speak to other industries. Like, the, you know, we have a great automotive industry in the UK. There's lots of other industries, consumer electronics. You know, we've we've got some really great examples of industries in the UK where they've they've taken this thinking and have been very successful. And uh, I think for textile industry in the UK, there's enough people out there willing to show you and and teach you. So supply chains are global these days. You talked about the car industry and although the assembly happens in the UK, the parts will come from elsewhere in the world, from Europe. The textile industry is very much the same. So how can manufacturers deliver so quickly when they're waiting on fabrics and yarns coming from overseas? Yeah, I guess there's, there's a concept from a lean perspective. So, so we try and, wherever possible, postpone the manufacture of the finished goods uh, wherever possible. And sometimes that means holding raw materials. Yeah, so, so the quantity of raw material you need to hold is directly related to the lead time it takes to produce the raw material. So that's how you calculate the, the inventory you need to hold. Um, now, wherever possible, as I said, we want to produce everything locally and in what we call a vertically integrated supply chain. So that means that, you know, every step of the process is is local and that it's all located in the same place. And that's very much how, you know, we set up the supply chain in Nokia. So so even our raw materials, quite a lot of them were made locally. Yeah. So we would have factories in our, our local markets. Now that's not always possible. There's a there's a journey if you're starting to re-engineer your supply chains, which means physical factories, et cetera. So, so then you have to start looking at the raw materials that you use. So if you think about customer, quite often the customer doesn't really care if the cotton that the T-shirt they're wearing has come from one place or another. They probably wouldn't tell the difference, even though the designer might be very passionate that it's a particular cotton. Um, would the customer actually notice? And that that then starts to lead you towards what we call platforming. So or, or set-based design. So, so we standardize the materials so that we can hold stock and, you know, that, that raw material may be used for a number of different product types, uh, but it's standardized. And the development cycle of the raw material could take years to perfect it, to get the kind of, um, you know, the, the performance that you want from the raw material, whereas the garments you're, you're producing in much shorter timeframes. So, so platforming is really important and it's exactly how the consumer electronics industry works, exactly how the automotive industry works. And yes, some components do come from further than one would want, but always we should be challenging ourselves, well, why can't it be made locally? That should always be our first point that we should challenge ourselves on. And to some extent, that is the model that fast fashion retailers such as Boohoo have built their business on. Because actually, when you look at the majority of products in their collection, they're all made from polyester jersey. (laughs) It's the same fabric. So they might be importing that. Yeah. Well, some of it they're knitting, you know, in in Leicester, but they're, in, they're that, but the yarn is being imported. Yeah. 
but they do the the printing locally yeah. and they do they can change the shape of the dress and and everyone thinks hey it's a new dress but actually it's just, they're they're holding the the base raw materials so it yeah, works in, in yard, the same in way yard, yeah in yard, you know the yarns are standardized um and i'm sure they're using the same yarns for lots of different fabric types and they can mix different yarns to produce different characteristics of fabric um, I think one of the things we do need to start thinking about, though, is, is going even further than just vertically integrated supply chains and start thinking about circular supply chains and some of the materials that we're putting into our into our supply chains. Um, you know, because where we start mixing raw materials, um, how do we then separate them, and how can we then create a, a circular supply chain? I think that's the challenge that is now facing the likes of, you know, Inditex. These are the problems they're now working on and looking to solve. And, uh, you know, I'm sure others are starting to think about it too, but that's that's the next level. Once you've vertically integrated your supply chain, you're making locally, you've reduced your carbon footprint, you're more responsive to customers, then we have to really look at, okay, let's start looking right at the beginning of the process, the raw materials we're using and how do we create a circular supply chain so that we use less and less virgin material and that we can reuse more and more of the, the raw material. Um, and that's what that's the last step if you think about the lean journey is that's, that's closing the loop um, mm-hmm. and actually minimizing our impact on, on the planet. Um, you know, and we really got to understand, you know, that pair of jeans that you're wearing, you know, what really went into making that, you know, growing the cotton, how much fresh water did someone you know, in another part of the planet, unable to drink because there is no fresh water left. There are brands that are starting to think about that closed loop. I actually think it's the small companies that are probably doing that better right now, actually. And I'm seeing so many micro factories Mm -hmm. being set up. I I interviewed uh, a couple just last week who who are set up a swimwear micro factory. They're printing themselves. Okay, they have to bring the fabric in from Europe, but they're manufacturing it themselves. And and I suppose those sorts of small factories are being set up on more of these lean principles at the moment. And I suppose the the test will be when they have to start to grow, do they follow the old ways of your traditional Burberry type setup yeah. or do they start thinking in this more lean way and manufacturing yeah. in in cells it's how can you make sure you're working in the in the right way as you as the business grows absolutely we tell you know if you see a startup business usually they're without even knowing it they're quite they're, they're applying a lot of the lean principles uh when they start up um you know because as i said most of it's common sense and when you haven't got cash um then yeah lead time and, and cash flow is quite important um as you get bigger it becomes less and less important sometimes you start to focus on the wrong things so so i think yeah maybe yeah we will see the big change happening and it might be a startup um, if we think about the startups over the past decade that have disrupted industries, um, there's lots of examples where no one knew who they were 10, 15 years ago, and now they're some of the biggest companies in, in the world. So if someone wants to go and read further, so what are some good books that you'd recommend that people can dive into to learn more about lean manufacturing? Yeah, I think, um, so one good friend of mine, Art, Art Byrne, he he was uh, one of the first, well, him and, and, and a handful of people were one of the first uh, kind of group of executives to be taught this outside of Toyota. And I'd really recommend his book. It's called The, um, the Lean Turnaround. Um, and it's it's a CEO's kind of perspective. So so if you look for Art Byrne, um, The Lean Turnaround, it's a really good book. It's written from the perspective of a CEO who's who's had to challenge himself with regards to taking his organisation through this journey. And, and Art's a very experienced guy who's, I think, turned around 
30, 40 companies in his career uh, applying this this thinking. So uh, so I'd really recommend his book. It's, it's, it's a really good book. So what advice would you give to anyone listening to this, be they a large or a small company, about how they could use lean principles in their business to make a rapid change? There's two questions I ask every CEO of any company. The first one is, do you understand why your customers buy your products? And can you measure that? And then the other question is, do you understand why customers don't buy your products? And can you measure that? And if you can't answer those two questions, yeah, you can't run your business. Yeah, that's such good advice. And it's so true. It's everything has to start with the customer, yeah, not with the design, because you've got a design with a customer in mind. And in a lean organization, that's where we start, the voice of the customer. How are you going to measure it? What do they like about your products? And more importantly, what don't they like about your products? And having lots of great rave reviews on your website might be brilliant, but it's not going to help you improve the product. What you want to understand is what they don't like about your product. <laughs> yeah. So that's, the, so that's the gold. You mentioned before that Inditex do that really well. How do they actually do that in practice then? So all of their, all of their store people are, are trained in asking the right questions. In a conversation, you know, so you wouldn't know that that's, they're not mining for the information. They, they've been taught to listen to the customers and to capture and to recognize that's, that's gold. That's, that's what Indotex, that's the information Indotex wants. If someone's moaning about a product, listen to them and make sure you capture every single point that they're making. And we want that information back at headquarters because that's going to improve our product. And, it's and they've not got seen. a good way of feeding that back from yeah, the shop every floor, day, the process. Every day they have a meeting with the store, uh, every store. They've got 6,000 stores. So it obviously happens at a regional level and then it all feeds back. But in a, every day that happens and every day that this information is in their Zara goes back. stores. Yeah. Well, all of their so stores. Someone in the, so, in the, so in the changing rooms, they know, you know, why a product wasn't right yeah, when they so put just, it back yeah, on the someone, yeah, shelves. So, yeah, if someone's tried something on and say, oh, how, you know, you know, yeah, was that okay? And someone said, oh, no, I didn't like this or I didn't like that or it didn't fit or it didn't this. It, that information isn't just lost. It, yeah, that's not just a conversation. The, the store associates and the store manager, you know, every day all that gets fed back. They're really that's listening. It's incredible that they do that on that yeah. scale. On that scale. You imagine how many people go through their stores. So, And you look at the conversions. They, you know, every, every, every store measure, measures conversion, right? So we have 1,000 people come through our doors every day and we only convert 6%. Okay, so what the, those two questions. So why did you convert 6%? What did they like about your product? But why did the other 94% walk out the door? Yeah? Because yeah. you spent all that money attracting them through the door. Yeah, for some reason they left without buying anything. Why? Because... So if you've got an online in, online only business, how can you exactly. how can you replicate that easy. feedback? Yeah, that's why Zara sees their stores as one of their biggest assets. Is uh, I'm sure you know their footprint store footprint will will maybe reduce because people are become becoming more and more reliant on online. But there are certain products that most people won't buy online, and um, you know we've been in a crisis. So let's see what happens. I think if you create a a great store experience and um, you know the stores will continually have to evolve because it won't just be about selling clothes that people want to know where they where it's grown they might have to show how they're manufactured you might have to have a showcase you know if you look at consumer electronics they've been doing this for years you know you don't go into an apple store um, to buy the product yeah 
that's not the reason Apple has stores. Yeah, it's always been about experience and showing off the product, yeah. how it's made. You go in there if you've got technical problems. You know, it's an experience. And uh, yeah, Apple's known this for a decade, and only now you know textile retailers are starting to talk about. Oh well, the store needs to be an experience. Well, when was it mm. ever not an experience? I mean, it's kind of bizarre. And I suppose businesses without stores can replicate that by finding other ways to re- meet their customers in, yeah. in real life. Yeah. That's just and as important about yeah, the size not, of the business. Yeah, exactly. And it's not that it can't be done online. It's just it's not as easy because the most important thing about understanding about customers is about the human. We're all humans and the need to interact with people will never disappear you know, I don't think it will anyway. I mean, it's, you know. No, so true. And and so that happens in a store. I mean, it's a social experience as well as a shopping experience and that will never disappear. It's just that most retailers aren't very good at the social experience bit. They just rack clothes up on a, on a rack and expect to sell them, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's, we've lost that. Are you being served? Yeah. type of British, we, very you know, British yeah, shopkeeper experience. So well. How it's can supposed, I help you? Yeah. yeah, yeah, and it's always we've got to go back. We've lost. It's all been focused about money and maximising revenue, and unfortunately, uh, it's done the opposite. You know, uh, it's forced us to go to China to buy products cheaply, and then we stack them up high. And yeah. the only reason come through the store is because it's cheap. They don't come through because they want a store experience or anything else, just because it's cheap and it's just not sustainable. Yeah. And I remember when I was at M&S, about the same sort of time as they got rid of all their UK supply base, mm-hmm. it was at the same time when they started cutting right back on the amount of staff they had in store yeah. and the amount of fitting rooms they had, because it wasn't yeah. about maximising the, the return per square foot of actual selling space in the store. So they weren't being, they weren't offering that customer experience. So you, yeah. it seems so easy, doesn't it? When you look like this, you can see where it's all gone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's easy to look back, but yeah, it's just always putting yourself in the, in the, in the shoes of the customer and mm-hmm. not just thinking about, you know, you've got to think holistically about the experience and the customer journey, not just about the product sitting on the shelf. That's part of it, but there's much more to the experience. And it depends on on the brand, on the product, on the, you know, different brands, different experiences. You know, it's not the, the same experience for you've got to work out every organization's got to work out what their experience is and how it's different. So what UK manufacturer, if you had to pick one, do you most admire? Um, who would that who? be? Or it could be a company. Yeah, I, think, I think one, of, be a person. one of our partners at Burberry, so so um, I think Johnston's of Elgin, they, they produced our, our scarves. And I think um, you know, what they're doing, if you look at vertical integration, they already have it. A lot of the processes, um, you know, uh, are, are the same processes they were using 100 years ago. Um, but I think, you know, what they've what they've achieved or what they're achieving what they're achieving now and they're they're started their lean journey we, we kind of introduced them to some of the thinking they were doing some of it already but we kind of just enhanced it when um, I was at Burberry um, and um, I really think I really admire them they their approach and their culture and the you know the way they go about producing their products and how they really support the farmers because the most the main raw material is cashmere and the amount of investment they put into that is really inspirational. Um, and I think in the UK, it's just one example. I'm sure there's many examples. It's just one that I know of. I'm sure I don't know of it's a good many choice. others, but I think they're, they're amazing. It's a really good choice. Yeah. And I've had Simon Cotton from Johnson's on yeah, the podcast. Actually. He was yeah. talking about, yeah, their focus on sustainability. Yeah. And how about, finally, what does made in the UK mean to you, James? If we think about the where 
kind of the textile industry started. <laughs> and this was, and many people didn't don't don't also know that um, it was Toyota's parent company, Toyota, who he he invented the weaving loom. So when you bring Toyota and the UK together, um, it's kind of I don't know why we've lost our way, but um, but I think what I see is it being rebuilt, um, uh, and I think made in the UK just means that that really you know we have the ability to um, to really change the way that textiles are produced in the world, and I think you know we have some such you know smart creative people. I think in the UK there's we have amazing engineering and incredibly creative people. And when you put those two things together, um, you can create incredible products. And, um, and I think, you know, for some reason, I think we lost our way a little bit in the kind of seventies and eighties. And I think now what I see is that being rebuilt and, uh, it's, it's to the credit of those who have remained like Johnson's of Elgin, who've remained, you know, in this really challenging time where they're being challenged on gross margin, uh, and they've remained and, and stuck with it. And now, uh, I think textiles is starting to to rebuild in the UK, and I think we can lead the way in in um, in building sustainable textiles value chains uh, in the future that will that will be um, a beacon to the rest of the world. Really, um, I think we've got everything we need from a skills base that that is needed to to do that. So uh, that's what it means to me. I think um, yeah, we can really show the way. Brilliant. Amazing. Well said. James, thank you so much for joining me today. If people want to contact you to, um, if they need, they need, because you work, don't you, with individual companies now as a consultant, bringing in some of these principles, what's the best way that people can, can get in touch yeah, with just you? Re, I mean, we're a community, so lead, pra- yeah, as lead practitioners, we're, we're a community of global people who are passionate about um, doing what we do, not because... Yeah, the only reason is really just that we think we can make a difference, and and for the reasons I spoke about, being able to build sustainable organisations that respect both the planet and people. So, so you know, if I can't help you, I can certainly put you in touch with someone who can. So, um, yeah, so it's it's really just reach out, and um, the more we can work together to solve some of these problems, I think the more successful we're likely to be. So brilliant oh james thank you very much for joining me today really really uh, informative session i love it thank you for listening to this episode of the make it british podcast i make an episode every tuesday and friday plus there are bonus episodes occasionally so make sure you subscribe in your favorite podcast app And if you're looking to find British-made brands or UK manufacturers, check out the directory on the Make It British website, which you can find at makeitbritish.co.uk forward slash directory. Thank you for listening. Bye bye.